Well, good morning. It is so good to see all of you this morning. I'll ask you to join me in your Bibles in John chapter 3. And in just a couple of minutes, we'll begin reading in verse 31. As you're turning there, I'd like to make mention of the lay of the land for us going through the rest of December. COVID has done what it does in the past couple of weeks, and that is to throw a wrench in things. I wish someone would have told me that COVID does that. Um, we, we are finishing this morning our study of verses 31 to 36 of chapter 3 here. This is a study in this particular piece that we began three weeks ago now, um, and we'll finish that this morning. So we'll have some recapping, some refreshing of our minds to do as we begin here. Um, We have also planned to end the year with Ryan leading us in a deep look at the biblical themes of joy, hope, and peace. Uh, So that's where we're headed for the rest of December, and I'm really looking forward to that study. Um, I'll be apart from you for some of that. We we have some traveling that we'll be doing. Uh, There's a graduation program that I'll be a part of, uh, and then uh, serving a, a good old friend as a groomsman in his wedding in Houston. So those things are coming up for us here as well. Um, But after Ryan's series, that will have us at the Christmas Eve service on Friday, uh, December 24th, uh, which I hope you're planning to attend. Those are beautiful, just wonderful times of fellowship, singing together, hearing the Christmas story read. Um, And that will close out the year 2021 for us. Uh, The new year then will begin with us finally stopping to carefully think about the concept that we've already encountered a couple of times in John's Gospel uh, as to Jesus' designation as the Son of Man. He has said that of himself a a couple of times. Uh, And the first Sunday in January is where we will stop to really look carefully at what he means by that, what the Bible is teaching us in that designation of our Lord. Uh, So that just gives you a sense of where we're going here in the next several weeks. Uh, This morning, it's our task to round out our understanding of John chapter 3. This has been such a rich chapter uh, with so much told to us about our Lord. Uh, And because there's been a few weeks since the last time we were here, we have a bit of reacquainting to do uh, for ourselves with this passage. So let me just remind you of a couple of things before we uh, stand and hear the passage read together. Uh, What we began to see when we started to look at verses 31 to 36 was the Apostle John's reflections on just how right John the Baptist had been when he said what he said to his disciples. You remember John the Baptist made clear to them that his life was utterly centered upon, I mean, his entire sense of what is fulfilling in life, what satisfies, what is worthwhile, all of that for him, he has centered on the notion that Jesus Christ occupies center stage in his life. We are only going to find a satisfying, joyful life if our life is lived from stage right. It is the essence of of a frustration, uh, the coming of cynicism, uh, an eventual despair to seek to live our lives grasping at center stage. It's just we're not the ones that belong there. And so we saw some reasons then 
from the Apostle John as he's writing this gospel, why that's just so accurate. Now, he reminded us for the third time in this gospel, in verses 31 to 33, that Jesus is far above everything in creation. Now, we saw that Jesus is, in fact, the very purpose for which God has created all of this. We saw that especially in verse 33. In fact, we spent most of our time, if you remember, simply in verse 33. Let me ask you to look with me there again as we're getting resituated here. What we read in verse 33 is this. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. And we heard in that statement all sorts of echoes of the word final. Uh, I'll paraphrase the King James Version of Hebrews chapter 1, just because I love the way that it words this. I'm going to grab that language and use it in reference to verse 33. Here's what we find. God has... At sundry times and in diverse manners in the time past, (laughs) there's that language, he has testified to his truthfulness. Again and again throughout redemptive history, he has shown himself to be true many ways, many times. But with the coming of Jesus Christ, we have the, what we called it, the tada moment of God's self-attestation. There's nothing yet to come that Jesus is representing or pointing forward to with his coming. He is it. He is what everything else has been pointing forward to as God has demonstrated his truthfulness. So that if you receive his testimony, the testimony concerning Jesus of Nazareth, then you've done it. You have set your seal that God is true. This is what we saw last time. And the opposite of that we saw as well from 1 John 5.10. If we do not receive the testimony that God has borne concerning his son, what we've done is we have examined all of the evidence that God is going to provide. And we have issued a final verdict that we think God is a liar. That's what you've done if you've rejected the testimony concerning Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Now, before we stand to read, I I want you to notice what the first word is in our text this morning, in verse 34. You see that word? I'm quite confident, no matter what version of of the English Bible you're reading, that you're seeing the same word there. Every version that I have seen begins rightly with this word. You see that it's the word for. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For, and here we go. Look, if verse 33 was speaking to us of deep truths concerning how God has revealed himself, then if it's possible, what follows is even deeper because it's going to explain that finality itself. We're going to see there's a lot of reasons we could not cover 31 to 36 in one week. We have some deep thoughts presented to us this morning. So I hope you're ready for that and excited for it. Uh, If you are able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. I'll read from the English Standard Version. John chapter 3, verses 31 to 36. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. 
He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. What we have before us this morning in verses 34 to 36 is very neat and nice. It's very straightforward. Three verses, three statements. And what we need to see this morning is that each of these three statements speaks to something new that has happened in the coming of Christ. Each of them in their own way is going to speak to the deep mysteries of what has long been called, get ready for a million dollar word, what has long been called the hypostatic union. You ever heard that term before? The hypostatic union? When we talk like that, what we're doing is we're, we're seeking to describe the utterly unique God-man, Jesus Christ. 100% God, but and 100% man. Two natures, one person. How do we describe this? There is nothing to compare it to. And what the church has long dis, uh, used to describe this relationship in Christ is the term hypostatic union. Our text this morning speaks to some of these realities. In fact, throughout the morning, we're going to have to be thinking in particular about the humanity of Jesus. We're going to be thinking in terms of his humanity, and I hope it'll be clear why that is as we're going through the passage. But So we have three instances then of newness here. The first we see in verse 34. Look again at verse 34. The newness that we find here is this. A man has had the Holy Spirit poured out upon him without measure. We read this. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Now, before we can reflect on the significance of this statement, we have to understand what it's referring to. And that takes a little bit of work because... The gospel writer has not explicitly spelled out in the sentence who he is or who is the one being given the Spirit. You see the end of the verse, for he gives the Spirit without measure. What is being said here? So there's two options. Is he saying, option one, that the Father gives Jesus the Spirit without measure? Or is he saying, option two, that Christ gives us the Spirit without measure? Who's giving the Spirit to whom? And the short answer to that is that it's option one. He's telling us that the Father has given Jesus Christ the Spirit without measure. That's the short answer, option one. The longer answer is this. He has made that clear both here syntactically in this verse and in terms of the testimony of Scripture as a whole. It's clear here in the verse itself. Uh, this part, for he gives the Spirit without measure, you could say that's 
verse 34b, isn't it? You notice that that part is finishing the thought from the first half of the verse, which has two actors in it, doesn't it? For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. You have in 34a, you have God and you have the one whom God has sent. Those are the natural two actors in part A, and they're the same in part B as well. He's saying to us, the reason that Jesus can utter the words of God is that God has given Jesus the Spirit without measure. So he's not made it unclear in terms of how he's described it there, but also biblically, uh, it's clear that option one is how we are to understand this, because the Bible spells out explicitly that none of us is experiencing this. None of us is experiencing what the Bible calls a measureless outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Now, it's, this is a, a very fitting occasion to just remind us all, when we speak about the Holy Spirit, we're speaking about a person. We're not speaking about a substance like water that you could pour half the cup out. It's not what we're talking about. When we talk about the the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, we're talking about the empowering that comes through the Holy Spirit, the gifting that comes. This is describing someone who is being gifted in this way in a measureless fashion. But the Bible, and in two places very explicitly, speaks about believers as having received the apportioning of the gifts of the Spirit according to a measure. Ephesians 4, 7 and Romans 12, 3, both make that very clear, using the same word that we have here of measure. Ephesians 4, 7 says it like this. It speaks in terms of grace, and he's very clearly there using the word grace to describe the gracious giftings of the Holy Spirit. And Paul writes there, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. It's an experience that we've been given by measure. Romans 12.3 does the same thing using the term faith. It's not talking about saving faith. It's talking about this. And he says, uh, he, he describes, quote, the measure of faith that God has assigned to each, making clear that that measure is different for each of us. But here, though, do you see the difference? In contrast to us, Jesus utters the very words of God because God has given him the spirit without measure. It's exactly the opposite of how we are described. So that helps us to be clear as to what verse 34 is actually saying. Now we have to try to unpack this reality. Because it, it produces a very good question. Maybe it's a question rolling around in your mind right now. If Jesus is God, how is it that he needs to have the Holy Spirit given to him? What does that mean? For one who is God? That's a very good question, and it's such a good question because it has an essential truth behind it. And that is that the persons of the Godhead are absolutely inseparable from one another. The church, the, their relationship is one that we've long described with the words mutual indwelling. The members of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, mutually indwell one another. All of the church fathers have, I say all, uh, a great number, perhaps all of them, uh, have at one point or another sought to write about this relationship, and they have been in consensus on this. Um, I'll quote for you from Augustine, just because I love how, uh, 
um, how he writes this, just for the fun of it, for your benefit this afternoon, I'll quote him and then just leave it there for you. You can take this home and think about it and talk about it. Uh, listen to how he describes the relationships between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He says this, Each are in each, and all in each, and each in all, and all are one. So, there you go. Uh, without even parsing that out, though, it makes the point pretty plain. The second person of the Godhead has never been without, can never be without, the third person. So what in the world is verse 34 talking about then? Well, it's describing something that is essential in Jesus' incarnation and in his earthly ministry, which is his complete dependence upon the Holy Spirit in his humanity. We find here a statement being made in reference to the incarnate Son of God, which is that he was completely dependent upon the Holy Spirit and that the Father, in fact, gave him the Holy Spirit without measure. Now, I, I, would, uh, I would share with you at this point two statements that others have made, because I've, I find these very helpful, um, and I hope that they will help you as you're thinking about this and also allow us to keep moving forward a bit as well. Uh, the first is from Sinclair Ferguson. He writes, he has a book about the Holy Spirit, and Ferguson says this regarding Jesus' human dependence upon the Holy Spirit. He says this, This aspect of the Spirit's ministry has suffered considerable neglect in the history of theology, despite noteworthy exceptions. Abraham Kuyper was right when he wrote, this is still Ferguson, Abraham Kuyper was right when he wrote that the church has never sufficiently confessed the influence of the Holy Spirit exerted upon the work of Christ. That's helpful. It's also helpful in, in pointing out maybe if this is an idea that you're thinking, I haven't thought about this much. Well, a lot of other people haven't thought about it as much either, at least according to them, uh, as much as we should. Uh, secondly, let me share with you something that Michael Horton writes. He's speaking about this verse in particular. And he said this, Jesus' bestowal with the Holy Spirit here, listen, this is very important. Jesus' bestowal with the Holy Spirit here is not to be conflated with the eternal relations of the imminent trinity. That's what we've just said. This is not a description of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in eternity. It is rather a redemptive historical event that equips Jesus as the servant of the Lord to fulfill his earthly ministry on our behalf. Even as he set aside the glory owing to his deity, Jesus was already receiving endowments upon his humanity in order to enrich us all. In other words, what we're finding here is an aspect of the inheritance that God has given to Jesus Christ that Jesus Christ earns and then turns and shares with his co-inheritors. It's profound. And yet still there's more that needs to be said before we move on to verse 35. Because this does more than just describe to us Jesus' own human need of the Holy Spirit. In fact, I would venture to say that's not even the primary point that the Apostle John is making here. What John is doing is making clear to us an incredible aspect of fulfillment in the coming of Jesus Christ. As we talk about Messiah as a spirit-endowed man from God. This is something Jesus brings up himself in one of his many preaching moments in his earthly ministry 
that put his hearers to one of those, um, I either need to follow this man or I need to stone him to death. Which one should I do? He had a few of those kinds of moments, didn't he, as he's speaking to the crowds. One of those is in Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. If you'd like to turn there, you're welcome to. I'll read verses 16 to 21, Luke chapter 4. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now just notice verse 18 there, what he read. What he read was that the Spirit of the Lord is upon him. In fact, He has been anointed by the Holy Spirit to accomplish his purposes. That's from Isaiah 61. And there, the one that Isaiah has been speaking of prophetically, uh, calling him the servant of the Lord. In Isaiah 61, that servant himself is speaking. That's why this is a first-person statement in Isaiah 61. And the connection between the servant of the Lord and God's Spirit anointing, resting upon, empowering his service is repeated in Isaiah 42.1. It's repeated in Isaiah 11.2. There it says this. It says, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. When this servant of the Lord comes, what will happen is that the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, come upon him and remain. I don't know, kind of like the account concerning Jesus' baptism describes explicitly, uh, come to rest upon. And it's fascinating to me because Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 4, using the very same word, that the Spirit rests upon us, those who are united to Christ. The fulfillment of these promises in Isaiah concerning the servant of the Lord, this Spirit-anointed, Spirit-empowered man, My friends, that's what the Jews have been waiting for. They've been waiting for Isaiah's promises that this servant of the Lord would come, empowered in just this way. So in Jesus, something unique, absolutely unique has taken place. A man has come. And the Holy Spirit has been poured out without measure upon that man as God's chosen servant. And this has meant that God's prophetic promise to send rescue, it has come to pass. This one is finally here. It's the first newness that we see here, that a man has been uniquely gifted by God's Holy Spirit. Secondly, we see in verse 35, that a man has been uniquely loved and rewarded by God. Verse 35, we read this, The Father loves the Son, 
and has given all things into his hand. Now that brings to my mind what we saw last time, which is that all of this has always been for the Son. This has always been the intent. It's always been the design for his beloved Son. Psalm 2, verses 7 and 8, we read this. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, listen to this, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Father loves the Son. And has given all things into his hand. What we're finding here is another instance of fulfillment. Psalm 2, what I just read to you, in its own context, is speaking about the Davidic king. David is the son of God. In fact, what we find is that there has been a thread. There's been a beloved son of God thread that has gone straight through the Old Testament. Adam was the son of God, created in his image and likeness, to bear forth his image and likeness to the earth. In fact, even in the New Testament, Luke 3.38 calls Adam the son of God. So a single individual at the beginning designated in these terms of sonship with God that widens out as the nation of Israel comes into the story because Israel as a nation takes on that designation. Exodus 4.22, we read this, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. Who's he talking to there? You remember that? This is the declaration to Pharaoh. Israel is my firstborn son, let my son go. Son of God in Adam, expanding out to the nation of Israel, and then narrowing back in. In the Davidic covenant, the title Son of God zeroes in on the singular representative of that people, the king of Israel himself. We read that promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, and it's repeated, interestingly, in the Psalms. In Psalm 89, just listen to what is said here. Psalm 89, starting in verse 20. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil, I have anointed him, hmm. so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and steadfast love, that is utterly covenant language there, my faithfulness and steadfast love shall be with him and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, you. <clears throat> he shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. He is my firstborn. He will cry to me, you are my father. 
there has been this long thread all throughout God's testimony to us of God having a father-son relationship. What's been the problem all the way through that? Well, the problem, of course, is that always those sons have proven disobedient. Adam disobeyed. Israel disobeyed. David disobeyed. Even David's great son Solomon disobeyed. And the result is there's been this growing tension throughout the story of Scripture. Who will be able to inherit the promised inheritance as God's son? Or we could put it in the terms we spoke of last week. Who will be worthy? Who will be found worthy? Revelation chapter 5, the apostle John is weeping. Remember that? Because the scroll, the great scroll that ushers in fulfillment and the perfections in God's plan, that scroll is sealed. And in all the host of heaven, no one is found worthy to open it. Nobody. Until here comes the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the son, the perfect son, who has obeyed the father perfectly. And so John writes here in verse 35, The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Now again, we have to understand the same thing that we had to understand in verse 34. Jesus is God. It's all for him. He owns it all. How can there be a moment in which the Father gives all things into his hand? And the answer is that we are talking here about the God-man, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ of Nazareth was born with a job to do, a job that was unfinished when he was born. The scroll remains sealed, unable to be opened, until a human representative can be found who is worthy to open it. And this is very important for us to understand. Jesus was sinless from birth. There is no question about that. But when we talk about worthiness in this context, we're not just talking about the absence of sin. Who else is there in Revelation 5? When all are surveyed and all are found unworthy, sinless angels are there. They're not worthy to open the scroll. What we're talking about is more than just the absence of sin. We're talking about the presence of an accomplished righteousness, the completion of something that has been demanded. We're talking about the active obedience of Christ. And it's not that hard to understand. You haven't obeyed until you have obeyed. This is exactly what the writer of Hebrews is talking about in Hebrews chapter 5. Do turn with me there as well, if you would. I'm I'm sending you to a few places this morning. Hebrews 5, verse 7. I'll read verses 7 down to verse 10. Listen to this description. In the days of his flesh, interesting that that's emphasized. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications 
with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek talking about something that he accomplishes in space and time. Jesus comes representing his people. And he does it. At last, it happens. He does exactly what mankind has always been called to do, was made to do. He faithfully represents his father on this earth. And this is acceptable in the sight of God the Father, who testifies to it by raising him from the dead on the third day. And then he does exactly what Daniel prophesied he would do. He climbs onto a cloud and ascends into heaven, returning before the Father. And exactly what Daniel prophesied was going to happen, happened. Daniel 7.13, And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one. This is from the divine perspective. So don't picture one coming down. One's coming up with the clouds of heaven. With the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. I wonder if we'll come back to this passage in January. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. He's talking about an event that happened once all things necessary were accomplished by the Son in perfect obedience to the Father. In other words, verse 35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. John the Apostle is writing this from a post-cross and resurrection and ascension viewpoint. He sees what has just happened. So what is new here and what has changed that signifies that Christ Jesus is worthy of increase in my life and in yours? Well, what's changed we've seen is that Jesus of Nazareth has had the Holy Spirit poured out upon him without measure. He is utterly gifted in all ways that the Holy Spirit gifts a man. Second, we've seen that Jesus of Nazareth has been loved by God as his at last true and faithful son and has been given all things. This leads us to the third uh, new statement that we have in verse 36. And that is that now, because of these things, faith in Jesus of Nazareth has been made the criteria for life itself. Look at verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God remains on him. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Let's think about that for a moment. Because there's new and there's not new in this, and both are very important. Let's think first about what's not new in this. And let's do that using Adam and Abraham as our paradigms. <coughs> Excuse me. Because the not new here 
Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. The not new here goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. For Adam, when he fell into sin, what was it that God held out to him that he had to believe in order to be justified in God's sight? Well, he had to have faith. He had to trust that God was going to provide a coming son from his own loins that would indeed crush the head of the serpent. It's the promise that God gave to Adam. And the question is, do you believe me or not? For Abraham, how was Abraham credited with righteousness before God? What do the scriptures tell us? By believing that God would provide a son, never mind that your wife is a lifelong barren woman who's now decades beyond childbearing years anyway, believing that God would provide a son. And the scriptures say, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. We could almost think of those two examples as proto-versions of this, here in verse 36. That element is not new. But the newness here, I think the newness here can be found especially in the parallel between believing and obeying. Did you see, did you notice that Belief and obedience are parallel to each other here. Look at it again. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever, and you'd expect him to say, whoever does not believe, but instead he says, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. Before the Son comes in the flesh, Abraham and Adam can believe God's promises concerning him. Can't they? In fact, they must. But hear this in the way I intend it. They can't obey him. Can they obey the eternal Son of God? Of course. Jesus, pre-incarnate, is throughout the Old Testament account. He's the one revealing uh, the truth of God and calling for their belief and their trust. Absolutely. They can't obey Jesus of Nazareth before Jesus of Nazareth is born. Does that make sense? There's a day coming up here quite soon that we're preparing to celebrate that commemorates the moment in time when the Son stepped into this world and took on human flesh. And after that, he learned how to speak. And as he grew and as he is equipped by God, what's happening is this, that that man who has now been born and has now learned to speak as God's beloved chosen son, as God's chosen human representative to himself, perfectly utters the words of God. Luke 2.52 puts it like this, that he grew in stature and in favor with God and man as he walks through his life obediently as the son. And to, in fact, to such an extent does he, as the faithful son, represent God, that this man can say, he who has seen me has seen the Father. In the Old Testament, believers are saved in the same way that they're saved in the New Testament. They're saved by believing in the promises of God as he has revealed them. In the Old Testament, they're, they, that what they're believing in is in the promise of an unnamed yet progressively revealed coming son. But once that son arrives in the New Testament, believers are saved by believing in that son who was born in that town 
with, this, with that name. And that man with that name, with that background, he speaks to us so that we may now obey him directly in this sort of a particular way. And at last, what has happened? The reign of man over creation as God's image to that creation, a reign that has always been intended by God, has now been achieved. And now to be saved forever, we must put our faith in one who was born one day in Nazareth, Galilee, who worked in his father's carpenter shop, and who was tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sin. My friends, herein lies the newness in verse 36. There is a man on the throne over creation. He is no mere man, to be sure, but he is true man. And this is what God has intended from the beginning when he installed Adam as image and likeness over all and called him to be faithful. I think we're safe to assume that by the end of John chapter 3, we're talking about realities that John the Baptist does not fully understand. But the Apostle John, who writes this gospel, by the time he's writing, he sure understands this. And as he reflects on all his time with Jesus of Nazareth, he knows the fact that that man's walking the earth has come to mean that everything, everything, everything has changed. And what that means for you and me this morning is that we have to consider the question, what is different about me? What is different about my life? Because Jesus of Nazareth has now walked the earth and has now been given a throne to rule from forever. And he sits in that throne now, ruling. He sits in that throne having been given all authority in heaven and on earth. What does that mean for me? What is different in my life? Because that's true. Brothers and sisters, that's what we are saying we believe. If we call on the name of Christ, we're claiming that that has taken place. There's a great deal that that ought to mean for us. And I'm thankful that in our time, we have, it would seem, more and more opportunities to make very plain that we are operating under the assumption of an entirely different authority structure than a world that sees no higher authority than what is now dwelling on the earth. Would you agree with me? We're moving at a breakneck speed today where our fidelity to the secular state threatens to collide with our fidelity to King Jesus. How sure are you this morning that there is a throne out there above all the other ones? And that a man born in Nazareth roughly 2,000 years ago currently occupies that throne and has no intention of that ever changing. In fact, we have promises. That throne will never depart from the son of David. What's different about your thoughts concerning who has authority in your life? and how optional that authority is. There are significant health crises that we're living amid today, aren't there? That are quite real and need to be taken very seriously. 
It's difficult times that we live in in that sphere. And amid all of that, what we are having revealed to us, is it not true, is just how much we fear death and just how much the fear of death would desire to occupy a place of authority in our life. Does the level of fear that you have of dying look any different from your neighbor who knows nothing of Christ and his promises and his current occupancy upon a throne that, con that contains all authority? What's different about how much you fear and how much the fear of death guides and dictates your life and its priorities. My friends, we have to think about that. We're confronted with it. What God's word holds out to us this morning is that the arrival of Jesus Christ of Nazareth has changed absolutely everything. And such is his claim upon the center stage of your life that obedience to Christ has now become the very litmus test as to whether we call God true or a liar. May God's people always declare to the world around us that our God is true. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we worship you this morning. And we worship your great son, your only begotten son, who stands even now in perfect obedience to you, standing on our behalf as our head and to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given. And this morning we thank you, we thank you for accepting his perfections in substitution for our unworthiness. Thank you for bringing us underneath his kind rule. We ask for your help today. Help us, Lord, to bow before that rule willingly, even joyfully. We ask you to expose to us the areas of our lives that continue to resist that authority and that rule. And we ask you to give us the grace that we need to submit those areas to you as just simply fresh battle victories of our Lord and King in our lives. Search us out, Lord. It's in the name of your precious Son that we pray. Amen.